The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is Matthew 2, verses 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod had died, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Art. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, the passage we're in today is a heavy passage, um, but gives a lot of hope. And so we're going to pray uh, that the Holy Spirit this morning would be with us, would be Tending to us. Um, again, I want to say welcome to those that are newer to Park Church. Um, I think anytime you come into a community, um, there's a degree of vulnerability, uh, meeting new friends, or maybe you walk in not knowing anybody or connected to anybody. We want to say you're glad, we're glad you're here. We're also praying that God would meet you. I think when you come into a place like this, a lot of times there are different things going on in your own life. And so whether you've been here for a long time or you're brand new, uh, in a room like this, there are all sorts of different life experiences. So when we talk about something like tragedy that we see in this passage, um, that's just, there's a tenderness to that topic, and we need the Holy Spirit's help um, to care for you, to actually encourage you where you need to be encouraged, to um, give you hope where you need to be given hope, to bring healing to areas that need to be healed. And so we're going to pray right now um, that this wouldn't be just kind of a, a conversation or a one-sided conversation, but actually the Spirit of God would be here, caring, shepherding, tending to each one of us as we spend time in his word together. So let's pray together. Jesus, you have promised that you're with us always, even all the way to the end of the age. And so we, uh, right now, ask that you would wake us up, spiritually wake us up to that reality, that you are with us right now. Um, as we sing to you, as we confess sin and turn back to you, as we're reminded of your love and your faithfulness, as we spend time in your word, would you 
make us aware that you're with us. And would you actually speak in very tender, very powerful, very transforming and healing ways this morning? Um, For those who have carried incredible pain into this moment, whether through losses or regrets or fears or any sort of painful experiences, God, would you tend to them in really sweet and healing and comforting ways? Uh, For those who walk in uh, feeling encouraged about life, God, would you encourage them yet again of your presence, that we depend on you, we trust in you. For those uh, who come in kind of suppressing through various tactics, uh, suppressing pain that's just hard to even face, God, would you comfort them even right now um, and, and care for them in tender ways. So we need you, Holy Spirit. We need your presence. We need your care. We need your power. And so we thank you for being with us. In Christ's name, amen. I remember about, it was about 11 years ago when my wife and I found out uh, that my wife was pregnant uh, with our first child, and uh, we were getting ready to move. I was graduating from grad school. We were moving from Chicagoland out to Fort Collins, Colorado, and we're going to be moving into a new house, and it was just kind of this weird season where, like, I didn't have a job yet, all right? We didn't know where we were going to live. We didn't know what income was going to be, but we were young, and we were like, it's going to work out great, right? And then the economy tanked, and all that happened, and it was just a little, a little terrifying. Um, and so we moved out here, and uh, again, the economy was in a rough spot. My wife's pregnancy kind of, like, went downhill real fast. She was in the hospital for a couple months during the pregnancy on bed rest. And, uh, and it was just like a, a crazy time. But in that time, this kind of like concept of nesting, I remember like learning about this idea, like we should be nesting. We should be creating a space for our baby. But it's like, we are just kind of surviving, right? We weren't living in our home. We were living in the hospital all the way up to the birth pretty much. And just kind of this like, we couldn't we couldn't like nest the way that we would want to. And so we learned kind of in our second, the second pregnancy, the concept of well, you can actually have a room prepared and you can have everything nice. And like, and it's a pretty common experience for new parents is this concept of nesting, right? So nesting is where you're essentially trying to create a safe, secure place where your baby can enter the world, where they're secure, where they're nourished, they're provided for, right? Where they are um, kind of comforted in times of difficulty as they get used to sort of the world around them as they, where they're loved. And so you're trying to create this really safe place. And there are all sorts of ways to do that. In fact, there's whole, like a whole industry around helping you have all the things your baby needs, right? So like when we were there, you know, you'd, you'd get like your umbrella stroller and your jogging stroller and some other stroller. You like need those, all those strollers, right, for all the things you need to be taking babies with. Uh, we got this like cradle that, or like a little rocker thing that would like just vibrate, just vibrates your baby. Like now they have like cradles that do this movement with your baby, you know, like this kind of like, it's called, it's called like the mama roo, where it just kind of moves side to side, mimicking human behaviors. Ours just kind of vibrates your baby, you know, just kind of, and, and I would lay there for like months, you know, just like trying to fall asleep, shaking this thing. I don't know that, that's not necessarily a good parenting tactic. I don't know the new studies, but anyway, this is what I would do, is like just kind of like shaking this like bouncy rocker, trying to get our baby to stop crying. And now you can get like, uh, there's a thing called the snoo. Anybody know the snoo? Uh, there's a few people that are huge fans of the snoo. I've heard about it. It's like, sounds incredible. It's like when your baby starts crying, it detects the baby's crying and begins to rock your baby. And it's like bassinet. And if your baby continues to crying, it kind of just does a little more like intense rocking, right? And then when they stop crying, it calms down and stops. If they don't stop crying, it notifies you via uh, kind of a notification on your phone. You need to go tend to your baby. This is real. 
This is real. Everybody I've heard it, like, this is a game changer. I'm like, yeah, that would have been amazing. Like, I still have shoulder injuries from, like, rocking a baby for, like, four hours next to my bed. Like, these are real things, right? Like, they used to have these bulbs, you know, uh, that you could suck snot out of your baby's nose, which is a thing. Now, technology has so far, gone so far, you can actually do that with a straw uh, and a filter. No, it's a real deal. You can actually attach a tube to your baby's nose and suck, I kid you not, people do this, suck the snot out of your baby's nose. There's a filter, so it's fine. Totally fine. Um, no, that's real, right? All sorts of things, right? Baby monitors went from like one-way radios that pick up your neighbor's telephone calls to like <laughs> now video monitors that get your heart rate, baby's heart rate, sleep cycle, oxygen levels, the content of their dreams. I mean, it just like puts it all, it's just like, you like know what's going on all the time. Like this is, this is a, it's a whole industry because we actually as human beings want to create that space. These babies come into the world in an, in an incredibly vulnerable space and we feel responsible to create a sense of home. It's a real thing. And in fact, every human being has that longing from, from kind of the vulnerable times we come into the world, even as human beings now, we just have more agency as adults to create that for ourselves. But you want that feeling of home. The story uh, today is a story of a family who had no opportunity to create this kind of secure, stable, sweet environment for their baby. In fact, the entry of this baby into the world was full of trauma, full of incredible pain, incredible brokenness, incredible chaos. And it's the story of our Lord coming into the world. And, and if you just kind of like imagine the scenario itself, it's, it's a story that begins from the very earliest days with this betrothed man and woman that we find out that the woman is pregnant, creates this controversy in a very small town that they're from, Nazareth, maybe 400, 500 people. In Nazareth, there's this controversy surrounding it. There's this stigma and this shame. And then there's this like census because Caesar Augustus has decreed that people need to go back to their hometowns because he's going to take an, a census. So then you're displaced out of your home. You have to travel to Bethlehem, away from your home, away from your family. So now you're away from different things. You're going to kind of where your husband's family's from. You're away from your parents and your siblings and anybody else that would have cared for you. And much worse, even worse than that, like you actually are, are going into delivery before you've even found a place to stay. And so you're going to the inns and the hotels in the city in this Bethlehem town, maybe a thousand people in Bethlehem. You're going to like all these different inns or the few that might be there and there's no room there for you. And so you end up in a stable. Like this is not kind of like, right, like your nice calming colors on the wall with this like beautiful kind of like simple uh, kind of like design elements with a lot of comfort and you got to kind of make sure you get the bumper around the crib so the baby doesn't, you know, like it's not that. It's a, it's a little stall where animals feed and, and this is where you're bringing this baby into the world. That night, some crazy shepherds that are kind of like, again, stigmatized in their society come in with this incredible sense that there's a significance to the baby's birth. And Mary and Joseph knew that. They knew there was a significance. And so you have this tension between the, the power of God coming and this like really beautiful moment of a baby entering in the world and then pain and drama and controversy and discomfort and surrounding them. And then some days or, or weeks later, potentially, um, a group of traveling astrologers, we call them the magi or the wise men, a group of them uh, show up with a sense, this awareness that this baby has come into the world as, as king. And so you have to imagine just Joseph and Mary in this very bizarre experience that there's a, a significance and a glory. God has come down to earth in the form of a baby and he's chosen them to like 
be the vehicles through which this incredible work of new creation is happening, this work of salvation, deliverance, and redemption. And at the same time, it's not attended with this sense of like everybody's excited and everybody's happy and it's a really, we had a baby shower and people are there coming to greet us and our parents are in the hospital and like the newborn baby king has come and you're the lucky ones that got to bring him into the world. No, that's not their situational experience at all. In fact, Jesus intervening in the world, coming into the world, taking on human flesh, was surrounded by, for even the family that was receiving him, brokenness and pain and trauma and tragedy. We expect when God intervenes to bring this sense of like just this euphoric, idyllic sense of like bliss and paradise, and that's just not what happens. God is intervening, and the intervening doesn't bring this immediate kind of resolution to all the trauma. In fact, it actually instigates and initiates a lot of controversy and pain into Joseph and Mary's experience in the world. Which brings us really to the heart of this passage, and I think the heart of like some of what we experience as humans that are learning to follow Jesus, or maybe you're, you're learning about Jesus right now, we have this sense that when we meet Jesus, or Jesus meets us, or we kind of like begin this relationship with Jesus, that it ought to mean some sort of like situational like calmness, some sort of like provision and blessing, right? When we talk about we're trying to create home, we want this security, we want to be nourished, we want to be kind of comforted, we want to have this experience of being loved, and when Jesus comes to meet us in the world and the situations around us, that's often not what we experience. And then as Christians, we have this like basic sense that like, all right, I need forgiveness for my sins, or I want some security in in heaven, or I want to like make sure I don't go to hell if that's real, because it feels kind of weird and it's kind of archaic, but it might be real, who knows, so like this helps, kind of that uncertainty. But there's this basic sense that when I meet Jesus, all my kind of dreams and aspirations and hopes that I have in the world, he should help those like come to fruition. He should help my life be solid and healthy and secure and happy and, and nice. And when that doesn't happen, we start to ask, where is God? What is he doing? Did he forget about me? Is he even real? When all throughout the narrative of the Bible's story, That's not what the intervention of God brings. In fact, the intervention of God does bring hope to the brokenness, but he's actually meeting us right in the midst of it, identifying with us in it, and giving us hope that there will be a day when he brings it all to restoration, which is what this passage is all about. Really at the heart of this passage um, is this powerful, powerful truth that Jesus meets us in our brokenness. He actually meets us in our brokenness to remind us that he's with us, to comfort us in our grief, and to give us hope of a future restoration. He's reminding us that he's with us, he's comforting us in our grief, and he's giving us this hope of this future restoration. And I think it's really important, in fact, it's like so crucial, especially in our culture, to kind of get your, not just your mental kind of faculties around this, but to get your whole heart around the reality that the world is marked by brokenness. Right? We all have this longing to, to feel at home, and I say at home not as a kind of like a physical geographical sense, but at a sort of like psychological, experiential sense of secure, loved, known, cared for, comforted. We have this longing, and the question we have to ask is, is where do you feel the brokenness of that longing? In your own life or in the world around you? And I, and I want you to get really honest about that, because this, this passage brings, brings us into some really incredible brokenness, and if you don't slow down to say, where do I actually feel that kind of brokenness in life? Relationally, emotionally, economically, you feel it in the world with our political systems and 
world crises and issues around us. You feel it in some sort of tension in your own life and your story and your inability to kind of feel at home. Where do you feel it? Where do you feel it? Because I think even today, Jesus wants to meet you right there. Right there. In it, to remind you, he sees you, he's paying attention, he's with you, he comforts us, and he gives us hope. And so what I want to do this morning is actually walk through these three movements in the passage that each end with this quote from the Old, Old Testament. You would have heard when Art read the text, this was to fulfill, or then was fulfilled, or this was to fulfill what the prophet said. Um, and we're going to kind of hone in on those points of what Matthew's trying to do to help us see something about God's presence in the midst of these tragedies that ought to give us hope. And so... Um, We'll start in this first section. I want you to look at at the Bible. If you close it, you should open it back up. We're in chapter 2, verse 13. It says this. Now when they, Joseph and Mary, had departed, or sorry, when they, the wise men, when these oriental uh, men who had come from the east, these astrologers had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, And flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and they departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Now I want you to just kind of like get into that sort of like emotional mental space that Joseph and Mary would have been in. Trauma, like glory and awe and wonder and trauma and pain and chaos have surrounded everything. And now, like, the the worst news of all comes to Joseph in a dream. And in the dream, an angel of the Lord tells him that Herod, which we already know this from the story from from the last section, but Joseph and Mary did not know this yet, that Herod, the king over Judea, had heard about the arrival of this supposed newborn king from these men who had come from the east with this news that there's a star that's risen, the star somehow represents some earthly correspondence, that this star, which is kind of out of the ordinary, is telling us that a new king has been born in this region. And they ask Herod, the presiding king, where he might be, and Herod, the king who liked his power and his kingdom and his influence and his comforts and all the things that his kingship afforded him, didn't feel like the arrival of a new king was good news. He actually felt it was a threat to his kingdom, and so in that sense of a threat to his kingdom, he gathers all these people to kind of ascertain where this child would be born. They find out it's going to be in Bethlehem, and because of his desire to maintain his power, maintain his kingdom, maintain his sense of like um, control over the events of Judea, he commissions some people to search diligently for the child so that they could destroy him so they could destroy him. And so he's wanting to kill this child and Joseph finds out about this in the middle of the night and immediately has to wake up, wake up his wife Mary, wake up his baby and start get their stuff together, find some mode of transportation and begin the 150 mile kind of flight down to Egypt. I mean, it's a traumatic, traumatic thing. If you're familiar at all with any situation, we have a huge community of refugees here in Denver. If you've ever paid attention to just the experience of, of a refugee in this world, it is loaded with trauma. Um, impen- intense, intense pain and trauma. In fact, I think there's something like 70 million people in the world today that are either refugees or displaced from their homes for a number of reasons. Um, there's economic collapse in Venezuela. You have on- ongoing conflict in places like Somalia and Yemen, civil war in places like Syria where just... Millions and millions of people are being displaced out of their home. 
And it's not because they're like, just like want to like upgrade their lifestyle a little bit. Like the, the emotional place you have to get to where you're ready to leave the people you love, the community you know, what's safe and secure, what's no longer safe and secure, but like the sense of home where you're willing to abandon all of that to kind of go, the, go through this incredibly painful and like risky and dangerous experience of putting a baby on a boat across an ocean or a sea or forging a river or walking on foot hundreds and hundreds of miles to get to the place where you think that's better than staying where you are, it means where you are has got to be pretty, pretty broken. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty broken experience. There's um, a poem that a Somalian uh, woman wrote, and I want to read you a piece of it. And it's called Home. It says this. You have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. She goes on, and no one would leave home unless home chased you to the shore, unless home told you to quicken your legs, leave your clothes behind, crawl through the desert, wade through the oceans, drown, save, be hungry, beg, forget pride. Your survival is more important. No one leaves home until home is a sweaty voice in your ears saying, leave, run away from me now. I don't know what I've become, but I know that anywhere is safer than here. Uh, Jesus comes into the world, the king of the world, as a refugee. As one who is fleeing. And, and this, this pain is so intense. And the reason why it's worth just like thinking about this reality around the world and Joseph and Mary's ability to identify with it is somehow the arrival of Jesus and the presence of this this degree of brokenness and trauma and loss and pain, somehow these aren't incongruent. Somehow, actually, it's the arrival of Jesus that's giving hope in the midst of these things. Giving incredible hope in the midst of incredible and inconceivable pain. And it's in the midst of this incredibly painful situation that Matthew actually writes this experience and this Flight from Bethlehem down to Egypt was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Um, this, this quotation is coming from Hosea 11. I have to like rein myself in. So my, all, of my, all of my academic work was on the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. And so like every time the New Testament quotes, quotes the Old Testament, I want to talk for like four hours about that, that reference. Like I could and I would be pumped about it. So I'm like... Rain it in. Because this actually has incredible significance for you and I. He's actually quoting from Hosea 11.1. 1, and Hosea 11.1 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And what the prophet Hosea is writing is not about this prophecy about the coming kind of Messiah is going to go through this experience where he's going to go down to Egypt and he brought back out of Egypt. And so I'm just, I'm kind of foretelling this future event. And so Matthew's like, oh, the prophet Hosea told us this was going to happen. That's not how most kind of like Old Testament quotations worked. It's not mostly working like direct fulfillment. A promise was made about this future coming king. The future coming king comes and they're like, oh, look, that fulfilled this list of promises that we heard about. It's way bigger than that. It's a powerful reality where all of this narrative of all of Israel's history has all of 
these kind of like themes that are moving throughout. And you kind of like walk through the Old Testament. There's themes about the people of God and themes about deliverance from pain and themes about rest and themes about joy and themes about reconciliation with God and themes about security and all these kind of things that are happening in the life of the people of Israel that end in the Old Testament ends and all of them are kind of unfulfilled and you're waiting. You're like, Wait, wait, like all these kind of like pent up hopes and dreams and expectations were waiting for the fulfillment and the Old Testament ends with 400 years of silence and you're like, where's it all going? And what the New Testament writers are doing over and over and over again is saying when Jesus arrived, all of those threads, all of those themes are coming together to bring resolution and hope and this beautiful tapestry that kind of puts all of the hopes of the world in this person, Jesus. And what Matthew's saying in this passage, when he says this fulfills what Hosea was talking about, he's actually moving way back, way back to the history of Israel, where Israel was in Egypt, and there was calamity and pain and suffering and darkness everywhere, and God intervened into the brokenness. We looked at, we looked at this through the series through Exodus. While they're in Egypt, he intervenes into the brokenness to call out, and, and it says this in Exodus chapter 4, he's calling Israel his son, his child, his firstborn child, like this community of people are like his children. He's calling them to come into his presence. He's calling them out of the pain, out of the darkness, out of the brokenness, into his presence. And then in Hosea, it says, though we came into his presence, we turned away again. It's like we went back to Egypt. Even if we didn't geographically go back to Egypt, our hearts went back to those idols, back to those other places. And so the promise of Hosea is that there will be a day coming again when Jesus or when the Lord will once again draw us out of Egypt. And what Matthew's saying is Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one who's actually coming to draw us out of the brokenness, out of the pain, out of the darkness, out of the difficulty, out of the trauma. It's Jesus. And he's not just doing it for the people of Israel. He's doing it for the whole world. In fact, what's stunning about this whole passage, and i got to rein it in right now, what's stunning about the whole passage is that in the place of Egypt, in the place of Egypt from kind of the book of Exodus, the Egypt and the Pharaoh, these were the tyrants that were reigning over the people of God. Now it's Herod, who's the king of Jerusalem and Judea, and all the people of Jerusalem that are the ones that are seeking to destroy the mission of God and the coming Messiah. It's like the very people that were supposed to be the people of God have now rejected his reign. They're the ones now trying to protect their power. It's like they should have been very close to God, but they're the ones resisting. And God is bringing salvation not just to the people of Israel, but to the whole world through this coming Messiah. He's bringing deliverance to you. And, and part of what Matthew's saying here, and this is the first implication, is that even in the midst of pain, you can be sure that God is paying attention and he's in control. And that's hard. He's paying attention and he's in control. In fact, one of the most powerful verses in all of the Exodus story comes from Exodus chapter 2 when the people are crying out, when they just had all their baby boys being killed by Pharaoh. And there's so many parallels. We'll see some more of them. All their baby boys are being killed by Pharaoh, being cast in the Nile River. They're crying out to God for deliverance. And then it says this in Exodus 2, 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is, and God knew. God actually relationally knew, cared, identified with them. And in their groaning, he was working to intervene to deliver them. 
in the midst of the pain that you see in your life, in the midst of the pain that you see in this world out there, in the midst of the pain in your past, in your, in your story, which I can't, I can't even fathom some of the pain that some of y'all have, have walked through. God is not distant. He's not, he's not kind of like hands off the wheel. He's hearing your groaning. He's watching and caring and tending and actually actively working to intervene to bring redemption and hope into the broken world we live in. Now, now we want that to mean immediate resolution to the pain. And it often doesn't mean that. In fact, the end of our life is an experience of pain and loss, right? For every one of us, it is appointed for all of us uh, a time of death. That's just, that's real and that's heavy, but like we as a society try to push that even to the margins. It's like the most real thing that we like all know here is like we're all gonna die. We all know that. And yet we still like think that we can like push away from the pain of that as much as we can for as long as we can, kind of like stem it off and kind of like not think about it. And the reality is that sort of pain is, is coming. And so life will be full of losses, full of grief. In fact, Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon about the book of Job where he talked about the book of Job as like basically what Job experienced in a moment of this incredible loss of his family and his property and his health and his life and his friendships is essentially the human experience that's just most often stretched out over a longer course of time. Like there's loss after loss and that's heavy and it's hard and it's real. And it's so important for us if we want to understand what it means to hope in Jesus to be honest about that. And in the midst of it, God is paying attention and he is active and he's in control. And even in this story, in the midst of all the pain, he's not, he's not like, his plan's not off course. He's intervening into the brokenness to bring hope and restoration. And it all comes through this person, Jesus, which, which leads to the second kind of element of this story, which I think is a really, a really powerful thing, that sometimes we think that because God's paying attention or because God's in control, that means we shouldn't feel. We shouldn't be sad. We shouldn't grieve. We shouldn't experience pain. And that's not at all what happens in this story. In fact, the story honors the pain in a very, very intense way. Look at verse 16. It says, then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, so they go to kill the baby. They find out the baby's not there anymore. Or, sorry, the, the wise men aren't returning. They can't find the baby. And so to kind of like cover his bases, it says he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So to be safe, he stretches out this age bracket from zero to two years old. And just like in the story of the Exodus, where the Israelites or babies are being murdered by Pharaoh, now Herod sends people to terminate and to kill all the babies two years old and younger. And you can read past that. It's, it's, I kind of like want to move past that, but you got to stop and you just got to take a breath. If you like, if you slow down and just imagine the experience of having a, a baby and you brought him into the world and all of a sudden this government enters into your town and starts going on this raid. I think of like Nazi Germany and the experience of Jewish people in the midst of the Holocaust and others is these raids where just like children are being taken and just killed. And, and, the, and the pain and the tragedy in that moment that would have stood with the people of Bethlehem for decades, right? Eight years later, 
when there's a bunch of eight and nine-year-old girls in the town and somebody else comes to the town, they're like, why are there no eight and nine-year-old boys? You just like feel this pain, whether you lost a child or not. You just this, this, this experience of grief as he's like two years worth of boys are killed. And it's terrifying. And, and, and what, what Matthew writes here, I think, is, is powerful. He says, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Um, in, in, this, in this quotation, what Matthew's drawing attention to is Jeremiah 31, where it talks about Rachel, who had been a, a, a matriarch in the history of Israel, and this experience of, of weeping. So Rachel had died in the midst of childbirth, and there was this kind of like experience of grief back in her story in Genesis. Um, but her theme of this grieving and weeping, the situation of her people, would continue to be carried throughout the history of Israel. So that in Jeremiah, what Jeremiah is actually writing about in Jeremiah 31 is the time where this nation Babylon had come into Jerusalem, had ransacked the city, destroyed their temple, took people, enslaved a bunch, killed thousands and thousands of others, took a a huge portion of the people captive, gathered them together in a place called Ramah, and kind of began a march and marched them out of Jerusalem, out of their home, into exile in Babylon. And Jeremiah's there, experiencing this. He didn't go with them. He actually stayed in Jerusalem, and and he's watching this, and and as he watches this, the Lord through Jeremiah is saying, this is Rachel weeping for her children, looking at this brokenness, people being ripped out of their home, people being ripped away from the presence of God, people experiencing exile and pain and brokenness and death and grief, families being divided, children being lost, and this incredible grief. And so Jeremiah, of all the prophets, is known as this prophet who just laments, who just weeps over the pain, In fact, he wrote the book called Lamentations, which has no real bow on it. It's just this grieving the pain and the brokenness of the world. And what Matthew's doing is he's actually saying right here, right now, Rachel is weeping. The Lord is weeping. People are weeping. The grief of this moment is so intense that it's like inconsolable pain. And that Jesus and the Lord God like identify with the pain. They like feel the pain, they honor the pain, that Jesus is one who would weep with us in the pain. We see that later in Jesus' own life, his ability just to lament and to weep because of the pain and the losses in the world. Now this, there's, a, there's a powerful like, tone of hope in Jeremiah 31. Actually Jeremiah 31, which is where this passage comes up, moves on to say that they will return, things will be restored, right? It doesn't mean all the losses are undone, It means there is a redemption and a restoration coming. There's actually hope. And it's this this experience of grief and hope that are supposed to be commingled together in this complex, like uncontrollable human experience. And to say for us, what does it mean for you to respond to the pain in the world? To actually respond, it's appropriate and healthy to respond with both grief grief and hope. Um, For me and my own story, I, I kind of like, I grew up in a home that's like, you know, stuff happens was the phrase, not the exact phrase, but like, you know, hard things happen. And so, like, control what you can control, fix what you can fix, like, and get through it. Just like, get through it. 
like make the best of the situation. If you're gonna like whine and cry about stuff, like that makes the situation even worse. So like, doesn't mean like put on a Pollyannish smile and just be peppy and happy, but like work hard, make things better and, and do what you can do. And that was like a huge thing for me and for my family. It actually created a, a real sense of like situational resilience, but it did nothing to kind of cultivate spiritual dependence, right? Like it creates a sense of like, man, we can get through stuff, hard things happen, but like pull up your bootstraps and, and, and fix it, you know, make it better. If you can't fix it, then don't worry about it because worrying about it didn't help anybody, right? And I think there's something real about that, except for what it created in me is this sort of like stoicism that actually thought like, I shouldn't feel pain, I shouldn't be sad about things and things shouldn't be hard, just like keep going forward. And it creates this real sense of disintegration in the kind of human experience because there are things you feel that you actually don't feel permission to feel. Well, then, then I become a Christian and I learn about the sovereignty of God, which is great because it means God's in control of things and if he's in control and if he's gonna work all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, then we don't need to be sad about stuff. And so actually now a theology, I have a theological reason to suppress my emotional experience. Right, and so I had a counselor, right? These things lead to lots of counseling. And so I had this counselor who talked to me. It's like the human experience is supposed to be this like theological leg, like what's true, and this psychological leg, like what are you feeling and experiencing? And it should be kind of like you should be moving both of these things in a healthy life, like thinking about what's true, not being kind of like constantly swayed by every difficulty, but also feeling. And so he was like, you're like doing the splits, like mega splits, like your theological leg, like your ability to think through, the, theologize yourself out of what you're feeling is so natural and fast that I don't even know if you're in touch with like your real emotional like inner life. And I wasn't, right? Like some weeks later, I'm like crying for weeks on end and like, you know, just like catching up on tears. You know, like uh, my wife would always be like, you, you gonna be okay? I'm like, I think so. <laughs> you know, just like... It's like mostly when we were watching like Disney movies and I'm like uncontrollably weeping. She's like, I think this is the path towards health, but like, do you think it will always be like this? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I think this is the way forward. Um, just like learning to like catch up emotionally and not trying to, but just starting to feel things and learning it's okay. In fact, it's appropriate. It's, it's human. It's, it's, it's in the image of God to feel pain and to grieve. And so what, what is it for you? I mean, you can rationally, kind of like this rational stoicism, like just push through it, that's my MO. You could go through this kind of like, look on the bright side, Pollyannish, kind of like, but, but things could be worse, put a bow on everything, tie it up, like, look, but it's, it's, you know, like every down dip is like a path to a greater opportunity in the future, you know? Um, is it? Until it's not. There's pain in the world that like is irredeemable in certain ways. And there's pain that's just like, you can't reverse. There are losses that when you feel that and when your path up into the right of life, like, man, my life should go like this and sure, it's gonna have little downturns, but just like, you know, kind of basic economic growth principles, like over the long haul, it's gonna be better. It's like, well, not always. In fact, the end of life is a, is a huge descent. It really is. And it's important to grieve those things. It's important to feel those things. It's important to weep so you should know, you should know First Peter chapter 1 and this concept of trials are like a furnace of fire that's refining faith. You should know about James chapter 1 verse 2 that you can count it joy when you fall into trials of various kinds because they're producing endurance, this, this strengthening character. You should know Romans 8. You should know that like the groaning that's existing in this world is leading towards this anticipation when God comes again and makes all things new and that 
All things really do work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You should pay attention to the story of people like Joseph who experienced this incredible pain and God was still working to bring salvation and hope to the world through that pain. You should know the end of the whole story, Revelation 21, 22, that God's gonna wipe away every tear and he's gonna experience, you're gonna have this like all things new and sin is undone and brokenness is undone and death is no more. And you should know 2 Corinthians 1, which talks about like when God comforts us in our pain, we're able to to comfort others in their affliction because we can empathize with them and express and extend the comfort that we've experienced as he's comforted us. Like, those are so important. And you should learn to, like, wrestle like Job and weep like David and question like the rest of the psalmist. You should learn to lament like Jeremiah. You should learn to doubt like Thomas and know that Jesus is okay with our human emotional experience. He's okay with us saying, how long, O oh Lord? Why, O oh Lord? I don't get it, O oh Lord. This is hard for me. I, I, I believe you, but help me in my unbelief. Or I'm, I'm frustrated and I don't feel like I deserve this. And, and all these experiences that are so honored throughout the biblical storyline and so important to be a healthy human person and actually to learn to experience the hope that Jesus provides, not through the denial of the pain, but the full-on embracing of it. And it's hard. It means you have to face hard things. It means there's stuff in your past that you tucked away and never dealt with. It's actually like, it's like these little strings that are attached to your life. And you feel these, these moments like, why do I get so upset when that happens in my marriage? And why do I freak out when this situation happened with my kids? And why do I get so defensive in this place and, and wor- in my work environment? Why, why? 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 Kind of create this like, well, I wonder why. There's probably pain in your story that just like stuff you've not really dealt with. And that's a really important part of actually learning to hope in Jesus is to get honest about all those things because he actually meets us in the midst of them. He actually met humanity in the midst of all the brokenness, saying, I'm here, I'm paying attention, I'm watching, I'm in control, and I'm, and I'm broken over this, which is why I've come, which leads us in, into the last movement of the story. Joseph and Mary have now been in Egypt for a couple of years in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that experience, an angel yet again appears to Joseph in a dream. Verse 19, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod. He was afraid to go there. That was, he was also like a second not good leader. There would be a long string of not good leaders in Jerusalem. When he was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And when he went, and he, and he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So some years later, an angel appears to Joseph. Herod's dead. It's safe to go back there, but it's not a good environment. So another dream warns Herod or warns Joseph, don't go back to Bethlehem. Go back to Galilee. And he went back to this, their hometown, Nazareth, this little town of a few hundred people. And it says this was to fulfill what the prophets, what the prophets said, that he would be called the Nazarene. Now the, now, the difficult thing about that is, like, no prophets ever said that. So you're like, like, you can look through the Bible, which... 
I have, and a billion scholars have, and commentators have, and it's like it never says he's going to be called a Nazarene. In fact, Nazareth didn't exist until like 150 years before the coming of Christ. It's like, what's, what's going on? There's so many theories, so many things. What, what feels the most clear and like the most plausible explanations of what Matthew's doing, which Matthew is brilliant in his use of the Old Testament. We'll see it all the way through. He's brilliant. But what he's saying, he's actually picking up on two themes. One is this, this word Nazarene has to do with, it's, it's similar to this word, a Hebrew word for a stick or a, a root. And so there's a prophecy in Isaiah 11, in Isaiah 11 verse 1, that this root would come out of this stump of Jesse. And so you might be familiar with the song, O come thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. Right, this is from O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Like we're actually saying, come this rod of Jesse or this root or this stick is the word of Jesse. And so there's a prophecy that the tree of the people of God would be huge and then through this pain and this rebellion, it would be cut down like to this stump. And out of all the pain and all the loss and all the brokenness, a new little shoot would come out of the stump and bring life and hope and healing and new growth and new life to everything that's been broken and cut down. And the prophets would pick up on that theme and start using this theme of this coming branch or this coming stick or this coming root of Jesse that bring hope and deliverance to all of the people of God. And, and at one level, that, that word root is Nazare, is saying, like Matthew's saying, this is the root, this is the, this is the shoot that's coming to give life to all that's been cut down and lost, to bring hope. It's also interesting that even the kind of like concept of this root is this, all the prophets would pick up on this theme that this coming king wouldn't be of this high estate. He wouldn't be this kind of like pomp king that comes in on a high horse to take the throne in Jerusalem. He's actually going to come in a very humble way. And so this idea of this stick kind of like root type fulfillment is like when he comes, he's coming as a servant. He's coming humble. He's coming into the brokenness. He's coming not to, not to be above it all, but to engage in all of it, to be right there in the middle of all of it with you. And that theme would be picked up and carried on. So this town, Nazareth, which is even seen as this very podunk, small, kind of like hick town experience that was looked on pejoratively with everybody else. In fact, all society for the next hundred years would be like call Christians Nazarenes, like Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, which was a totally pejorative term. They're like saying, like, these are people from nowhere. They mean nothing. They're inconsequential. They don't matter. And what they're saying is Jesus is going to come into that environment, which, which is something that's highlighted by the prophet Isaiah. And this is how Isaiah speaks of the sort of humility of this coming king. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, this coming servant, this coming king, grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. We called him things like a Nazarene. Truly, he's borne our griefs. He's borne our griefs. He is carrying your pain. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And it's with his wounds 
his pain, his trauma, his loss, his grief, his cross, his thorn, his piercing, his scourging, the abandonment he experienced from his friends, the the pain he experienced with his family, the betrayal he experienced from a close friend, the injustice he experienced in the world, the false accusations and the rejection and the isolation, and ultimately the separation from God, the Father himself, all of his wounds, that wounded people that have experienced trauma of all sorts of kinds that find healing. It's with his wounds we're healed. And this is the Jesus that's intervening right now. He identifies you with you in the pain. He comforts you in your sorrow. He reminds you that he's paying attention and he sees you. And he's entered into the pain. He took and laid down his life on the cross. And he rose again on the third day to give us hope. Incredible hope. That while you grieve, while you feel, while you pay attention to the world around you and the pain inside of you, Jesus is the one who gives you hope in the midst of all of it. That one day he will come again. And he will heal everything that's broken and make all things new. Let's pray. Um, Father, would you right now meet with people? Um, Meet with people through your Holy Spirit that you would actually tend to the brokenhearted, that you would those who feel, yeah, even just incredible pain or those who feel like not sure that they want to even think about certain aspects of pain and loss in their own life, um, would you, Jesus, uh, very kindly, very tenderly, like a good shepherd, like a good physician, like a good counselor, meet with them right there, right now. Friends, I encourage you just even, just to be honest with Jesus about where you feel sadness, where you feel pain, where you see pain that you don't feel, where you have doubts, where there's shame or guilt, just to be honest with him and actually believe that Jesus entered into it all. He's not distant or callous. He sympathizes with us in all of our weaknesses and all of our calamities. And that he, even right now, just like this awareness that he weeps with you where you weep. Like he's sad about the things that have made you sad. He sheds tears for the things that have caused you tears. But may he also give you hope. The story's not over. He's at the helm, and he's leading all things towards a glorious and powerful future. In Christ's name we pray, amen.